Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are T.J. Wallace, Assistant Director of South Carolina Humanities, Dr. Kenneth Robinson, who's a sociology professor at Clemson University, and Ms. Marie Adams, who's director of the Harriet Barber House in Hopkins. We're going to be talking about Crossroads, Change in Rural America, a traveling Smithsonian exhibit funded by South Carolina Humanities, and one of its locations will be the Harriet Barber House in Hopkins, South Carolina. Folks, welcome to the journal. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. It's great to be here. TJ, I know that South Carolina Humanities has been partnering with the Smithsonian for a number of years. Would you give us some background? Absolutely. Uh, South Carolina Humanities has been um, partnering with the Smithsonian through their Museum on Main Street program since 2004. And Crossroads, Change in Rural America, is the sixth uh, traveling Smithsonian exhibit that we've brought to South Carolina to travel specifically to small towns and rural communities around the state. And it's been a wonderful project for South Carolina Humanities. It gives us the opportunity to get into some communities that we don't always um, serve uh, very well. A lot of our grant applications come, as you would imagine, from Columbia and Greenville, Spartanburg and Charleston. So this is a way to get to some of the smaller towns in South Carolina and bring them a really um, well-packaged product from the Smithsonian to get their community really excited. All right. And if I remember rightly, the last one had to do with sports, did it not? We did bring an exhibit called Hometown Teams. That one was very popular. South Carolina loves their sports. I see from your program that this is going to the Union County Library in Union, Voorhees College in Denmark, to the Harriet Barber House in Hopkins, to the Barnwell County Museum in Barnwell and the Dillon County Theater Association in Dillon and the Newberry Opera House in Newberry. Uh, That's probably the biggest town you're going to. That is the biggest town. (laughs) So the programs have been very well attended, even in the smallest towns. That's right. Um, When we get the evaluation forms back from the local communities, um, we always see that the cultural sites that get to host this exhibit see an increase in their attendance, sometimes of 150% or more, um, to, to see that many more people coming into their small museum or um, historical society. We've been at Southern Wesleyan University. Um, we've been in libraries, of course. We have even been in a church once before, because that was the the only really community space they had in that that community. So it's been a wonderful experience, I think, for the communities and certainly for South Carolina humanities. Each of these programs, you have to have a humanities scholar in residence, and that is Dr. Ken Robinson's job, right? (laughs) Ken, let's just talk a little bit about your background before you ended up back at Clemson. I know it's your alma mater, but you've had a very interesting career personally and professionally. Well, as um, you may have discovered, I grew up in Graniteville, which is a small town near Aiken. And interestingly, when I went to Clemson as an undergraduate, although Graniteville is only two and a half hours or so from Clemson, when I got there, none of my friends knew or had heard of Graniteville. They always thought I was saying Greenville. So (laughs) (laughs) so I had to correct them. And uh, so having grown up in a small, very close-knit community, I am really excited about this exhibit traveling to South Carolina, especially for small towns and rural communities across the state. Outside of Greenville, Columbia, and Charleston, South Carolina is predominantly a rural state. And so as a rural sociology professor at Clemson, I'm really excited about uh, this opportunity coming to our state. The folks who deal with demographics talk about all the standard metropolitan areas. And that even they do that for Columbia. You, you can go down 15 miles from Columbia to Hopkins. And I don't care if we are in a standard metropolitan statistical area. That's rural South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So part of that is an administrative definition of what rural is. And so oftentimes um, programs, federal programs in particular, has to define who's in and who's out. So this designation of rural in class, we often talk about, is there just one definition of rural? Certainly not. There are probably 15 or 16 definitions of what rural is. And a result of that is you could be living in a rural place, it may be designated the, by population, say less than 2,500, 
or it may be your distance to a metropolitan area, how far away you are from that, how remote the area is considered. So those definitions have a lot to do with funding for school programs, rural transportation programs, rural electrification, and other uh, infrastructure types of activities. So uh, the definition is very diverse uh, at times, and also the opportunities to work in Washington gave me a glimpse of uh, it from a sort of national perspective, community rural development from a national perspective, and the importance of these programs to small towns and rural communities and access to services. Every time you pick up the newspaper, the the word seems to be, well, rural America is disappearing, particularly the the small towns. Is that an accurate picture? I think if you look at rural areas in terms or think about them in terms of what they lack or their deficits, then that might be an accurate picture, but I don't think that's the full definition of rural areas. And I like to look at rural areas in terms of their assets, and I'm very, very much a proponent of asset-based community development, ABCD. And I think we need to look at the resources that are available in rural areas, particularly the values, the close-knitness oftentimes of rural areas. One of the things about growing up in Graniteville, uh, at the time it was a population of about 2,500. So I knew all of my classmates from kindergarten through 12th grade because we were in school together and we were participating in band and other activities together. So I knew them. I knew their families. We attended the same churches and activities in town. So I think that's a proponent or an aspect of rural areas that gets lost if we only think about them in terms of uh, what they don't have or what they lack. All right. And Ms. Adams, let's, a little bit about you. Are you a native of Hopkins? Uh, yes, I am. Um, I was born in Hopkins in December of 1948. <laughs> so I've lived in um, Richland County for most of my life. And uh, we found uh, documentation of the Barber family living in Richland County, actual documentation dating back as far as 1868. However, uh, we're still searching for information about the actual uh, year that uh, Sam Barber left Blackstone, Virginia, or was taken from Blackstone, Virginia, and somehow uh, ended up in Richland County. The document we have dated 1868 is actually a certificate of marriage. Uh, he performed the marriage of his son, whose name was also Sam, Samuel Barber, and a Clarissa Mack in 1868, and it's, it's just amazing to see a document dated uh, 1868 that early um, that still remains. Um, and we were fortunate uh, in the Harriet Barber house to find enough evidence to kind of piece the story together, as it is with most African-American families. It's um, somewhat difficult, you know, <laughs> to trace families back in the early 1800s. Uh, but we actually had um, another document showing the registration certificate for Samuel Barber uh, living in the Lower Richland County area. And he was, of course, registering to vote in the year 1882. And on that document, it asked for his age, and 80 was the year that he uh, indicated uh, the, uh, the year of his age. And um, so we were able to figure from that, because before we only knew that he was born in Blackstone, Virginia, but had not known, you know, what year it might have been. So all that we can do is, you know, estimate that it was about 1802 that he was born. But between then and, of course, 1868, we don't know when he actually came to South Carolina. Okay. I was, I was going to say, if he had been a free person of color in the 1860 census, he would have showed up in South Carolina. Right. And, and people don't realize that there were, particularly in Lower Richland, but going in, right over the, into the high hills of the Santee, a sizable number of... Yeah, a colony of free blacks. Of, of free persons of color. Uh, in fact, William Ellison from uh, the high hills, mm -hmm. master maker of cotton gins, and he owned more than 40 slaves. 
Right. It's an interesting South Carolina story that people don't often understand. And this house that you're talking about is involved with the South Carolina Land Commission. Yes, that's correct. The land being granted for, by that. So let's let's talk about that project for just a, a minute, the Land Commission. Um, this was a program created during uh, Reconstruction with the um, legislators, the majority of whom were African-American, uh, came up with this program to allow the recently freed slaves to purchase land for the first time. And um, the Barbers, um, Samuel Barber, my great-grandfather, and my great-grandmother, Harriet Barber, were able to take advantage of that program and purchase uh, 42 and a half acres um, in the Hopkins area. And before that, they were living in the Kingville area, as we were told. And um, there was a young lady who did a research um, project out of the University of South Carolina's public history department. And her research focused on African-American farming practices in Lower Richland. And she found evidence of Sam and Harriet Barber farming 15 acres of land somewhere in Lower Richland. And we believe, of course, it could have been in the Kingville area. So we have more research to do. But again, you know, there at least is some kind of paper trail that we can try to put a story, a complete story together for our family. Well, the Land Commission, yes, land was sold. There were other families in Little Richland that, that purchased land. This might have been one of the more successful areas where that, that happened. Yes. Um, I think it was 2009 or 2010, we partnered with the University of South Carolina's uh, Public History Department. Um, a number of the students did research on those families who purchased land through that program. And I believe their research focused on about 10 of the families. And, um, of course, the Barbers were just one of, of the 10 still in possession of that land. And what's unique about the Harriet Barber house is our house is the only house existing on land purchased through that program. Our history, I suppose, is a little unique because our family, <laughs> I like to call them pack rats because they saved every piece of paper, every document, almost every receipt. Um, and so we have the document showing the uh, final payment made in 1879. Um, so when you get a chance to visit the Harriet Barber House, you'll get a chance to see that document. And I also like to point out another interesting document that we found, which was dated 1878, the year before. And it was the year that the barbers had to sell their beloved <laughs> uh, black ox, because perhaps that tells us that maybe the crops uh, weren't profitable that year. They didn't have the money to make the payment, because this program gave them seven years to uh, pay off the property um, and in 1878, they sold their black ox in order to make the payment that year. And that just told us about the, the perseverance that the barbers had to make sure that they owned their land free and clear and that it would be here for generations uh, to enjoy. Well, you mentioned two things that piqued my interest. First of all, mentioning the black ox, people do not realize that Rural South Carolinians, black and white, used oxen. Everybody thinks mules, mules, <laughs> mules. Yeah, the mules came later. <laughs> uh, but they did use oxen. And also when you mentioned that, that Samuel Barber was registering to vote in 1882, and you have his registration certificate, which means he did get to vote, mm -hmm. 1882 is actually the year that South Carolina's political system began to crack down yes. on African-American mm -hmm. voting. So the fact that he was able to, they, it, he, pretty much, it pretty much required a re-registration in 1882. And the mm -hmm. fact that he did it speaks, first of all, that he was a pretty determined individual. Yes. And the fact that he was, I hate to say, allowed to register means that he was, a res he was respected mm -hmm. by the community, both black and white. Right. And that meant that Within a decade, he was literally just one of a handful of African-Americans in the state that were allowed to vote. Uh, this also speaks to this link between uh, the discussion about the land, speaks specifically about the link between rural areas and urban areas. So, for instance, not too long ago, um, 
I was approached in my work with the Clemson Extension to assist members in the Hopkins Lower Richland area who were interested in building upon the success of Columbia and the growth of Columbia and the disposable income of many of the residents in Columbia who were interested in uh, knowing where their food was grown and supporting locally grown foods and niche markets in this area. So in terms of rural entrepreneurship and those kinds of things, much of that stemmed out of this land ownership and efforts through the Land Commission and other agencies. The history of the Land Commission was written by longtime friend of mine, the late Carol Blesser, who for many years was the Lemon Professor of History at Clemson University. So anyway, Miss Adams, you live in the house. No. Oh, you don't? <laughs> no okay. one lives in that. No, nobody li- okay. Well, actually, it's interesting, um, and I tell groups when they come to visit, that we have had family members living in the house until maybe... 1985 or so. Uh, We had some cousins uh, from Detroit who came down just to get away, I suppose, for a while. They stayed a few years there, uh, changed the insides quite a bit. They left probably the late 80s, um, left that house. And uh, at that time, my dad was um, becoming um, older and not able to keep up the property as he had. Now, Keep in mind, he had um, 10 brothers and sisters. It was a family of 11. All of the uh, brothers that my dad had, um, some of whom were older and he had a few younger, but when they had the opportunity to join the Army, the Navy, or whatever, they left. They were ready to leave the rural area, the farming and all of that, and find other opportunities. Um, I like to say many of them were part of the, the northern migration Many of them ended up in um, Detroit, Michigan, and my dad's youngest brother, uh, who was in the Navy, ended up in Los Angeles, California. He passed away a few years ago, and I was able to to get out to to his funeral services and, and of course, visit him periodically um, before he passed away. And my Uncle Johnny, who turned 97 years old this year, lives in Detroit, Michigan, I want to give him credit for a lot of the um, work that we've done at the Harriet Barber House because um, his memory is unbelievable um, about growing up in rural uh, Hopkins. In fact, he sent a sketch of the well that was on the property, and he said that this was the well that our great-grandfather, Samuel Barber, built there in 1872 when the family first moved onto the property. And so uh, he was able to send us a sketch. Now, I told you he's 97 years old, uh, but you'll be able to, to meet him on Facebook if you want to search for him. <laughs> That's He's, wonderful. He calls himself a high-tech um, junkie, but he, he does everything technical, um, including um, you know Facebook, email. At our last family reunion, he was able to join us through Skype. And uh, so with that sketch of, um, if, I, if I have enough time to talk about that, um, with that sketch of the well, we had it on display in the um, original, uh, one of the original two rooms of the house. And um, I had a cousin who uh, called me because he had a classmate of his visiting the area. He actually lived in Hilton Head. And he said, I want to bring him by for a tour of the Harriet Barber House if you have time. And, of course, I never turn anyone down. I said, yes, I'll find the time. I'll I'll meet you there. And so I gave the gentleman, um, of course, the, the normal tour of the house and talking about the history of the family and showing them proudly all the documents that we have on display. And so at the end of the tour, he thanked me for sharing our family history with him. And he said he was very impressed uh, with the project that we had completed at that point, And he would really like to make a donation. And so he remembered the pic- the sketch of the well that my uncle had sent. And he said, how much do you think um, it would cost to build a replica of that well? And I gave him, you know, an estimate of what the materials and the labor might have cost. And he said, well, I'm going to send you a donation. And, um, and so you can expect to see it in the mail soon. 
And, you know, I thought it was going to be, you know, just a small donation. <laughs> but sure enough, the check came in the mail the, the next uh, week or so. And it was enough to build a replica um, of the well. Of course, when uh, visitors come, it's it's quite a unique design. But my Uncle Johnny, um, he sent us the sketch. And um, so we were able to give that to Mr. Johnny Martin of Columbia. Now, he was our uh, building uh, contractor for the project. Um, years before, I think it was probably um, during the time that my husband and I were living briefly in Charleston, and I attended a conference and got to meet Mr. Herbert DaCosta. Uh, that's a name I'm sure that you know. We need to, our listeners, <laughs> one of Charleston's legendary historic restoration exactly, specialists. Exactly. So he was making a presentation at this conference, and I just couldn't wait to meet him at the end after he finished his um, his talk. And I introduced myself and, and told him about the Harriet Barber House, uh, which had begun to deteriorate, of course, by then. And he took a special interest um, in the house. In fact, he actually did the uh, building uh, specifications for the restoration. And in fact, um, he made several trips up to Columbia. Um, and then, of course, finally got a chance to come to the Harriet Barber House. And even though it was in terrible condition, he saw the potential there. And he just took it as a personal mission to make sure that we say, do you know what you have here? He said, um, we've got to save this. And uh, and I know the guy in Columbia who can do this work for you. I'm going to get in touch with him, and I'm going to give you his name and number. So he was the one who recommended Mr. Um, Johnny Martin. And um, Mr. DaCosta made many trips um, once we got started uh, working on the um, restoration of the, of the building and um, did not live to see the, the final, uh, the completion of the project, but I'll always, you know, um, remember his kindness and his compassion um, and his connection to our project and making sure that it was, it was going to be saved for future generations. Well, what you have just, this story you've told, in addition to the historic speciality of the house itself, the fact that it was a one of Herbert DaCosta's last restoration projects adds greater historical value. Not that it didn't already have enough, mm -hmm. but that adds something very special, because people think about his restoration of the Grand Places in Charleston. Right. Uh, so what what is the year that this restoration was finished? Um, it was 2009. I'll, I can remember 2009 because earlier that year we have our, we had our first group of visitors who came from Columbia, Missouri to visit the Harriet Barber House. It was an after-school program. Um, I believe it was Mrs. J's after-school program from Columbia, Missouri. <laughs> and they traveled all the way by bus. Um, with the group, it um, included the children, of course, um, parents, some parents, as well as the um, after-school teachers who came with them. And apparently one of their students uh, worked at Benedict College in Columbia. So Benedict was the, the first stop. And then they came to the Harriet Barber House, and then they were going to go on to Penn Center um, after that. But it was our good fortune um, and our blessing that they were able to come and see the Harriet Barber House, even when it was not completely finished, but th they were the first group to come. All right. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with T.J. Wallace, Dr. Ken Robinson, and Ms. Marie Adams about the Harriet Barber House in Hopkins, which is going to host an exhibit by the Smithsonian, a traveling exhibit called Crossroads, Change in Rural America. So, Ken, when did you get involved with this project at the Harriet Barber House? Uh, yes, I guess it was uh, 2017. Uh, TJ contacted me from South Carolina Humanities, and she had been referred to me by a colleague at Clemson who knew of my 
uh, interest and work in rural areas with rural communities, uh, specifically uh, from the vantage point of rural sociology, and thought perhaps I should speak to TJ about the opportunity to work with this exhibit. Having spent time previously in uh, Washington, D.C., where at my office at uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I could walk out the door and oftentimes would walk across the mall, the National Mall, to the Smithsonian and participate in their programs there. When TJ introduced this idea to me, I jumped at the opportunity to work uh, with the local communities, and it enhances my work in the classroom as well because I can bring examples from communities to my classes, introduce them to my students, and oftentimes my colleagues that I meet in the field will come to class and they'll interact with the students. And I think that really turns the classroom into uh, a learning laboratory, uh, so to speak, especially in terms of learning more about rural areas and rural communities. Well, don't forget about your connection to Joe Neal. Yes. So I was, uh, when I met uh, Ms. Adams, I mentioned to her that probably t- 2009, 2008 or so, early in my days back at Clemson, the South Carolina Clemson Cooperative Extension was approached by Representative Joe Neal at the time about promoting an annual sweet potato festival that's held in Hopkins. We would work with local community leaders there. And we even produced a Clemson sweet potato ice cream for the occasion at that time. And it was through Representative Neal that we were very much involved in marketing and promotions of the annual sweet potato festival. Again, it was an effort to take advantage of the growth in Columbia and the interest of residents to learn more about the local history, the local area, and more about the culture and resources of the area. So we learned a lot in our interactions, and that led to other interactions with community members in Hopkins as well. Okay. I want to talk about the exhibit, but I want to ask Ms. Adams a few more things about the house. Describe briefly, if I were to come to, to Hopkins to go for a tour, take me for a brief tour through the house. Oh, I'd love to. Do. In fact, I've got to do that tomorrow. <laughs> we have a group coming at um, at 3.30. But uh, normally we greet our visitors on the front porch. And uh, we have a collection of some of the farm implements, some of the farming tools that we normally put out on display um, on the porch. So we talk about those uh, first and explain the kinds of crops that would have been um, in the fields about the time you know, of the, the group's visit. And, uh, and, of course, throughout the year, what would have been farmed there. And, uh, and then we also point out the, um, the plaques that are on the, on the uh, wall by the front door. It was originally part of the um, South Carolina Bicentennial Tour. And then, of course, we have the plaque for the National Register of Historic Places there as well. And then we take the groups inside, small groups, because, of course, the museum rooms are actually the original two rooms um, built there in 1880. And uh, we were told, of course, when they came to that property in 1872, uh, there was a log cabin built there. And the log cabin burned down, and then this two-room home replaced the log cabin. And we step inside um, onto new floors because over the years, the floors were damaged by either termites or rain through the roof. So we have flooring replaced in the um, original rooms. But after the last family members moved out and Mr. Martin and Mr. DaCosta began their work, we removed the old-fashioned paneling, wood paneling that was on the wall. Underneath the wood paneling, the sheetrock was there with several layers of wallpaper. But then we found the original whitewashed walls, those walls that would have been there in the 1880s. So you took the sheetrock off, too? Yes, um, with Mr. DaCosta's direction and working with Mr. Martin at that time. So we wanted to leave those two rooms as close to what it looked like in in the 1880s. We were fortunate to save um, some of the pieces of furniture. We have a 
what was called a wardrobe in the Harriet Barber house, which we believe is the oldest piece of furniture because my dad used to tell the story that when they left Kingville, they loaded up the wagon with that large wardrobe and brought it up to the house um, in um, Hopkins. And uh, it is in excellent condition. Mr. Martin took very careful attention to it to uh, make sure that it was um, restored and and not uh, destroyed. And you can um, even see on the sides of the piece of furniture the wooden pegs that were used to construct it. And we normally point that out to groups when they come through. Well, see, for example, children today don't understand, and adults too, in the 19th century, houses didn't have closets. I don't care whether it was Tara and Gone with the Wind or whether it was an independent yeoman farmer's house. They just didn't have closets. Right. Uh, well, it, one of the things um, we try to impress upon the young um, school groups when they come, just imagine how it would be to live in just two rooms. And as you look around, you're not going to see a kitchen and you will not see a bathroom inside. Uh, there's no running water. And uh, until 1935, there was no electricity. So it really uh, gets them to thinking about how families actually functioned and survived, you know, without all the trappings of luxury that we have now. Well, let's say you just put in another historical <laughs> footnote. Electricity in 1935 uh, through Rural electrification, yes, uh, a, a New Deal program. But even so, over half the homes in the state didn't have electricity. Yeah, and we also have um, a sewing machine that belonged to my grandmother. Uh, and we know it's not the original sewing machine, probably the one that belonged to Harriet. We actually have a receipt where she made a payment for this sewing machine, and we put those um, types of documents out on display. You know, we tell the, the children now, during the time that Sam and Harriet lived here, they didn't go out to the mall to go shopping. You know, all the clothing would have been made on a sewing machine. And I said, if you, you notice closely, now you don't see um, this plugged into the wall. There's no outlet. You know, how do you suppose they got this to work? And so that kind of create in them an interest to you know to figure out, you know, how could they make this sewing machine work? And they they eventually figure out you have to use the pedal at the bottom, and you also have to turn the wheel, you know, to make it go. But you know, it's it's a learning experience. We also have one of the first irons. Now this was not original to the house, but it was uh, donated by one of our board members, and so. You know, when you hold it up to the children to uh, to look at it, you know, you ask them also, well, how do you suppose this works? You can't plug it in to make it hot. Uh, so we get them again to kind of um, to critically think, um, you know, how this would operate, uh, because uh, even though originally there would have been a fireplace between the two rooms, um, eventually they had a, a chimney with a wood burning stove. Mm-hmm. And um, and we have one of those donated also in that room, and they would figure out, oh, I know, you'd have to have a fire, and uh, you'd make the iron hot, and then that's the way that the iron would um, be effective. So we have quite a collection of um, items from, from back in the day that uh, would interest children as well as the older groups. Uh, we have quite a few senior groups who come for tours as well. So we kind of, t- you know, try to take the groups um, back and, and get them to imagine how life would have been without all the conveniences that we have today. Well, you mentioned one of your board members. So you have, this is a nonprofit that owns yes. the house now. And almost everything that you'll see in the house has been donated. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was just curious when you talked about your father had, what, 12 brothers and sisters? There were 11 of them. So oh, he had. 11. Right. Because he was one of 11. So with that many heirs, sometimes the property title is difficult. Did your father, he must have inherited the property just by himself. And no, the decision was made to uh, remain heir property so that there wouldn't be any possibility of it being further divided. There were two parcels of land that we know of 
during the time Sam and Harriet's children were living there. One part is right across the street where the McCracken family now lives, um, actually belonged to Sam and Harriet's daughter, Nancy. But Nancy got married, and her husband moved to Florida looking for better opportunities there. Uh, so he sold his part of the land uh, to the McCracken family uh, legally. Mm-hmm. And then there was another part of the property that's directly behind the Harriet Barber house now. But originally, you know, it was the 42 and a half acres, but it's um, occupied now by um, many of the cousins. My dad said that uh, these were children of not Sam and Harriet, but Sam and perhaps his first wife, whose name we believe is Rachel. And uh, because Sam Jr. was not a child of Harriet Barber. Well, so the house itself that and the property it sits on, not the 42, is still owned by the Barber family? Yes. Okay. The nonprofit just manages it, so to speak, because um, we plan programs there. And we also have, um, as I've mentioned before, school groups that come and tour and also, we've had we've hosted family reunions there, uh, families in the community who want to have an event on historic grounds, <laughs> and just a variety of events that, that take place there. Well, plans gets us back to the traveling exhibit. <laughs> TJ, you want to describe what it is? I would love to. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation because some of the topics that have come up so organically from um, what Miss Adams and um, what Dr. Robinson have said are all, as you would imagine, part of what's discussed in this exhibit. The exhibit has six sections. Um, it's 750 square feet. These exhibits that come through the Museum on Main Street program are made specifically to be um, adaptable to a variety of small places, knowing that they're going to um, cultural organizations in small in small towns that may not have huge exhibit rooms the way we would expect in larger museums. So the exhibit has six sections. Um, it has an introduction that looks like a welcome sign that you would see if you're driving into a small a small town. Um, it has a section on identity, which talks um, some of what uh, Dr. Robinson was talking about. What does rural mean? How do you define? Um, what is rural. There's a section on land that talks a lot about um, land ownership and access, some of the things that we were discussing earlier. There's a section on community that talks about how people connect, Main Street America. Um, It talks a lot about the New Deal and some of the programs um, through the New Deal and about the accelerated change in the second half of the 20th century. There's a section on persistence that talks about revitalization of small towns, what are the attractions of a small town, what are some of the wealths that small towns have. And the final section is on managing change and it kind of invites people to to think about the challenges that are faced by rural communities now and and what, what can be done. And one of the unique interactives that this exhibit has is there's a mailbox in that concluding exhibit with little um, note cards that people who tour the exhibit can fill out ideas they have for their community that the, the local cultural organization can then possibly use for future programming ideas or um, share with their powers that be in the local community. So, Ken, would you like to add, add some more to that? Yes. The conversation earlier about Young people, there is a decline in the rural populations. There are fewer people who are now working or living directly on farms or working in agriculture even. And as a result of that, many of the young people oftentimes are unaware of where their food comes from, how it's grown, actually what it looks like. I'm not surprised when I go to the grocery store even and I go to the vegetable aisle and I'll get something and the high school student who's checking me out ask, what is this, you know, and not really knowing what it is. And so someone having to tell them that, oh, this is a zucchini or what have you. So I think this is very important for introducing young people to uh, history, past culture, and the connection that we actually have today. One of the things that we soon discover is that we actually live in regions. 
So both the rural areas and the urban metropolitan areas are dependent upon each other. And as a result of that, I think it's very important to be able to draw out these connections. And I think this exhibit will help to show the ties, especially in terms of rural communities and the rural culture, a rural past, where we most all came. I wanted to add, if I may, that we'll be working with Robin Berlinski, who's the executive director of Engaging Creative Minds. She'll be working with us in discovering different ways that we can engage the the students, not only in the local school district, but in the Midlands, um, so that they'll be prepared um, to come and visit this exhibit at the Harriet Barber House. The exhibit, TJ, you want to just give us when they're opening in the different locations around the state? Absolutely. The um, Crossroads Change in Rural America um, will open in South Carolina on September 8th of 2018 at the Union County Carnegie Library. After six weeks there, it travels to Voorhees College in Denmark, South Carolina. It'll be at the Newberry Opera House um, for six weeks. It opens February 9th at the Harriet Barber House and it'll be there through March 24th. Then it travels to the Barnwell County Museum, where it'll be on display from March 30th through May 12th. And then the exhibit closes in South Carolina at the Dillon um, County. It'll be installed at the Dillon County Courthouse, sponsored by the Dillon County Theater Association. And it'll be on display there from May 18th um, through June 29th of 2019. So we get about 10, almost 11 months of time with the exhibit in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I know, Ms. Adams, from our, our conversation before we started recording, you've got big plans for when the exhibit opens at the Harriet Barber House. Yes, and we're hoping everything will come to fruition. Uh, but our grand opening is tentatively planned for February the 9th. And we'd like to host it at the Hopkins Middle School Auditorium because... The auditorium is named in honor of my father, um, who was the first principal there. And um, there is a, a connection also to a document we have on display in the Harriet Barber House. Uh, it appears that the Barbers have been teaching in Richland County for over 100 years. I think it was Dr. Warner Montgomery who did an article for the Columbia Star a few years ago um, and interviewed my, my father during that time. So we thought it would be appropriate to start out at that location um, at the auditorium with our opening reception and an exhibit where we'd like to feature some of the local um, artists, not just uh, the visual artists, and then we will leave the auditorium and about two minutes away and down the road, uh, the Harriet Barber House um, will be open for the very first time with this display. The whole idea of community, can you? I'm sure you can elaborate on this. In rural communities, schools are a very important institution, part of the glue that keeps the community together. Uh, and they are more than just schools. They're meeting places. Right. Yes. They are social spaces, I mean, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So schools provide sort of connection for everyone. It's something that oftentimes uh, folks are able to rally around. We think about football on Friday nights. And the community sort of comes together during these times. And oftentimes it has been the schools that sort of provide the glue the common denominator within those communities that bring different groups together, different neighborhoods together through the schools. I remember in my high school, it was a small school, and we didn't necessarily, we had one foreign language, French at the time. Later, there was school consolidation, and the larger school had all the languages, many more than one language as a result of that. But oftentimes, those processes are difficult because of the strong ties that folks have to their particular school and what it mean and has meant in that community. Well, I, I was going to say, did you graduate from Graniteville High School? Or yes, I was in the last graduating class of Graniteville High School. And how large was your class? 234. All right, that's still pretty That's pretty good size. Uh, Miss Adams, when you graduated from high school, how large was your class? Uh, probably 125. Okay, and that was in? In Hopkins. In Hopkins. Mm -hmm. it, actually, um, the grand opening will be 
on that site. I think they've already replaced all of the original buildings, uh, but the high school buildings, you know, mm-hmm. were on that site where Hopkins Middle School now stands. Okay. We're talking about change in rural America. What's the time period covered by the exhibit? Ken? It's quite extensive. It talks, uh, definitely covers the uh, 1930s and the New Deal and some of those uh, aspects all the way through the present, actually. And I would say that it even touches upon labor. And so it talked about sharecropping and actually um, slavery to a lesser extent. But that's also mentioned in there as well, sort of historic bringing up to the present. Well, South Carolina was one of the most rural states in the country and still in the 1930s. So that sounds like a logical place because the coming of the New Deal, whether it's electricity, uh, various programs, for example, was there a cannery in Hopkins during the Depression? Do you remember? Usually at a school, they would... I'm more, not sure. I'll no. have to ask my Uncle Johnny. Okay. He would remember. But, <laughs> but, but, but New Deal programs would, would have a cannery so that mm-hmm. people could preserve food because even though you had electricity, not many fig- people had a refrigerator. Right. So that really began to change the face of rural America, did it not, Ken? Sure, certainly. And actually, I guess this is another tie-in to my interest in this project. At Clemson, I have an extension appointment, which is part of Clemson's land-grant mission. And uh, we're both often familiar with the uh, ag extension agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, formerly, there were one in each county. And so bringing that information off college campus to the rural communities, I often remind my students that being able to sit in a classroom is a luxury, and it has been for a long time, and it was only folks who had the means to be able to do that early on. And so um, this is a way to, extension has been a way of getting information from the university into the broader public. Well, and in addition to to the ag, extension service. Uh, There was also a home economics extension. Again, this goes to the preservation of foodstuffs. Well, home economics was taught in in schools. In all of the schools. In fact, Winthrop and I know South Carolina State both had home economics departments well into the Mm -hmm. 1950s. So if your grandmother didn't know how to sew, she could, <laughs> the extension agent <laughs> could teach him. Now, that sort of program has kind of disappeared, has it not, Ken? The home economics part of it? The home economics part of it, yes, uh, to an extent, but now there's um, this whole idea of human ecology. And so oftentimes there won't necessarily be the home economics piece of it, but home economics and consumer kinds of things are still in programs now today. I think it's time to maybe sort of wrap this up, and I'm going to start with you, Ms. Adams. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? We're just excited about this um, exhibit coming to um, our location um, and we try in different ways to get as many people to come and and see what we call a living history museum so that people can kind of get a glimpse of what it was like farming in rural South Carolina during the time of Sam and Harriet Barber. So I think those who come to see the Crossroads exhibit there will really see a unique experience and, of course, enjoy the exhibit from the um, Smithsonian. Ken? Yes, I would simply like to emphasize the rich history, culture in rural areas and small towns across the state. Uh, Oftentimes, I think we may be distracted by what's happening in uh, the cities and they often get lots of the attention. Uh, So I think we have a rich history and culture in South Carolina, and I encourage folks to take advantage of this opportunity of bringing this national exhibit to our state. Okay, and TJ? Something that's really special about Crossroads um, Change in Rural America is that it's the newest exhibit from the Museum on Main Street arm of the Smithsonian. South Carolina is going to be one of the first states to ever tour this exhibit. In fact, when it opens in Union on uh, September 8th, that'll be 
the first time, basically, it's it's going to be seen in the country. There will be two other states um, touring crossroads at the same time that South Carolina is, Illinois and Florida. But um, South Carolina Humanities has never been one of the first states to host one of these traveling exhibits. So that is really exciting for us. And I think this exhibit is just really special in its ability, we hope, and I know the Smithsonian hopes, and I think all the local sites hope, to invite thought and conversation that may help make change in some of these small communities, to really start thinking about what do we want to do in our community? What does the future for our community hold? Um, what are some changes that we could make that would um, better highlight the, the wealth and wonderful things that we already have going on in our communities? Ms. Marie Adams, Dr. Ken Robinson, and T.J. Wallace, thank you for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Talking with Marie Adams about her family's history in rural lower Richland County down at Hopkins brought all sorts of South Carolina history into focus, from the Land Commission to Voting Rights Act to the rural electrification. And then what does it mean to be in rural South Carolina or rural America today? That's one of the questions that is explored by this traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian. A great opportunity to learn what once was rural South Carolina and what are the opportunities and maybe a pathway to the future. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.